Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Good afternoon. We are starting uh, a LawPod discussion today. I would like to start by introducing myself. I am Teresa Moreira. I am the head of the Competition and Consumer Policies branch of ANCTAD, which is the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development based in Geneva. And um, I am uh, here today as a, as a guest host because ANCTAD in 2010 launched a, a research partnership platform which is just an informal framework uh, where we gather universities, scholars, competition and consumer protection experts and um, representatives of um, different stakeholders to um, discuss key issues that the research centers and the academics are working on that correspond to the priorities of UNFAD's work which is devoted to assisting developing countries in using competition law and policy, in this case, to better integrate the world's economy. So today we are here um, because of the um, a recently launched report um, on, uh, entitled Developing Countries' Experience with Extraterritoriality in Competition Law. And um, we will have not only the author of the report, Dr. Marek Martinez from Queen's University Belfast School of Law, but a number of um, scholars that will um, comment on their views and, and share with us insights regarding uh, this topic. So I would like to start introducing our, our um, guest commentators. Uh, starting with uh, Professor Chinlan Yu from the Faculty of Social Sciences, University of Nottingham. Uh, professor Imelda Marr, uh, Sutherland Full a Professor of European Law, Sutherland, Sutherland School of Law, University College of Dublin. Professor Alexei Ivanovs, Director of the BRICS Competition Law and Policy Center at the Skolkovo Higher School of Economics in Moscow, Russia. And finally, the author of the report, as I mentioned, Dr. Marek Martinzis from Queen's University Belfast School of Law. So I would like to start with uh, Marek's uh, report, of course, asking to share with us some um, key issues regarding this very interesting uh, study. Um, can you uh, please tell us, Marek, what do you mean by extraterritoriality? And how do you think we should talk about this in the broader context of competition law? Thank you so much, Teresa. This is, this is a terrific question. And indeed, I'm, I'm grateful to the opportunity to conduct this project within the RPP framework. So many thanks to you and your colleagues for making this possible. Without it, it would not be possible. But what is extraterritoriality? By extraterritoriality, we simply mean application of local law to parties whose often purely foreign conduct harms consumers and businesses locally in the jurisdiction applying the law. 
And what's the significance? What, why to think about it in competition law? It's simply because many of the listeners would think um, that with the progressing globalization and quite a lot of international commerce, there is a global fix. However, in competition law, no multilateral collaborative way of dealing with illegal anti-competitive conduct has been developed. So quite often, competition agencies all over the world are left at the mercy of, for example, international price fixers, and they have to apply domestic competition law to reach them beyond the limits of their country, so to apply law extraterritorially. And that's what the project really focused on. That is very interesting, of course, from the point of view of that, since we are so much focusing on international cooperation, I think this is really a timely topic, as you mentioned. Can you um, now share a little bit with us um, the study in itself, how it unfolded, um, and what are the key findings? Right. Thank you so much. So, yes, um, this study uh, is quite interesting because it's first such empirical study of its kind, actually checking what is the situation in the developing world in this space, because we focus on developing countries. It relies on input from 40 countries and economies in transition, so it's quite robust in scope. Um, and it focuses on very diverse group of countries, so from large BRICs, so Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, so uh, very important developing countries to much smaller and less affluent states. Moreover, um, many of the states have different level of expertise when it comes to competition law. Some introduced competition law in 1990s and some introduced competition law only recently. So that's quite interesting because it really gives us an idea of where we are. Now, um, what is quite interesting is that actually there is more going on than one would expect. So it's quite quite promising. The situation is better than many would think. 34 states out of the 40 that took part in this study recognize extraterritoriality as such. 33 countries provide explicit provisions enabling domestic competition agencies to apply law extraterritoriality, extraterritoriality. And Chile allows for it thanks to judicial interpretation of existing law. There is, of course, some diversity of tests and there is a diversity of experience. So there's quite, quite a lot going on, more than many would think on the surface. Thank you. I think that this is also very interesting. I think I will now um, like to ask questions to our um, uh, other guest uh, speakers or commentators before I give you then the, the final world. And, and for that, I would like to uh, ask uh, uh, Chilen, if I may, um, what can she tell us about concrete um, challenges faced by developing countries, namely China, regarding um, uh, this particular issue and any other bilateral or regional cooperation uh, issues um, while well, thinking of the, the, the Asian context. Chinla? Uh, thank you, Teresa. Uh, yes. Um, well, based on the experience of, of China's extraterritorial application of its competition law regime, um, it kind of uh, the statutory law, anti-monopoly law adopted in 2007, uh, provides explicitly the extraterritorial application of the law based on the effects doctrine, provided a um, 
business conduct is proven to have caused negative effect on the economy of China that triggers the application of the anti-monopoly law. Um, but, um, well, so this has been uh, kind of in application ever since 2008 when the anti-monopoly law took effect. Um, so I think from the, um, in the global sphere, I think the effects doctrine is somehow generated by the, the courts in the mature competition regimes has somehow provided quite useful reference for the China's competition regime to refer to when it develops its own anti, uh, its own extraterritorial application of competition rules. It also justifies the statutory provision of the anti-monopoly law. Um, in the, with respect to the enforcement, in the public enforcement, uh, the main challenge faced, uh, well, I mean, the, 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 the competition authorities have completed a few investigations uh, by calculating the harm caused by the business conduct to the Chinese economy. But with reference to uh, the Chinese uh, legislations, so um, the main uh, challenges faced by these competition authorities would be in terms of collecting evidence, um, uh, asking the, well, uh, who is going to be the whistleblower and, and, and also um, uh, kind of advocating China's uh, international cartel legal regime, asking for um, cooperation. Sometimes the business parties are not necessarily motivated to cooperate with the Chinese uh, competition authorities. Um, in terms of private enforcement, so far we, there hasn't been any uh, litigations brought by private parties in front of the Chinese courts, although it is legally possible. Again, the Chinese judiciary, the courts faced, um, um, you know, the application, uh, again, faced the same challenge in terms of collecting evidence and also enforcement in the future, the enforcement of Chinese court decisions outside the Chinese uh, jurisdiction. So just to, just to sum up, I think the, the extraterritorial application of competition law based on the effects doctrine has provided more teeth to China's competition origin. It makes it more powerful to catch uh, certain uh, harmful business conduct in the global sphere, but it also makes it possible to set out the scene for China to, for China to seek and develop, develop bilateral cooperation with uh, global trade powers such as the US and the EU. So what we can observe is that um, the US, China and EU, China bilateral cooperation in terms of international antitrust has somehow shown certain convergence with the US-EU bilateral co collaboration because it all, the US-EU and EU, US-China and EU-China bilateral cooperation both contains the basic elements of bilateral cooperation, including uh, the exchange of information, uh, basic elements of certain COVID application of committee, and the consultation as a main means to resolve uh, disagreement among the parties. Uh, going forward, I think I think the main challenges that China faces as a developing country in in kind of strengthening its bilateral cooperation could, for example, include. Uh, how to make it more effective in terms of exchange of information among competition 
authorities, uh, the application of committee and its compatibility with Chinese domestic law, and the effective resolution of, of disagreement among the competition regimes. So that's what I have just seen um, in, in terms of challenges. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I would like now to turn to Imelda and ask her, among other things, uh, how does, uh, on the basis of your experience, how do you see the reliance on decisions and judgments from other jurisdictions, which is a point that actually Marek addressed, and of course, I think is one of the very interesting ways forward, even though not a, an easy one. So how do you see this unfolding? Are there any requirements? I would like to hear you on that. And also if you could share with us some views on, let's say an assessment of the positive committee um, experiences, um, because as you have seen, well, bilateral cooperation, regional cooperation, international cooperation do exist. And uh, several jurisdictions are engaged in, let's say, these three uh, avenues. And yet, um, ANCTAD research constantly underlines that there is still uh, not enough enforcement cooperation and lack of trust. And not only, um, so not only, let's say, legal type of obstacles, as, as Chinela was mentioning, but uh, lack of trust or lack of resources or lack of uh, familiarity with this with this issue. And so I think that that's at uh, international level, we, we do need to think a little bit uh, um, on, on more innovative ways of better promoting international cooperation. Over to you, Imelda. Thank you, Teresa. A brief comment first on, on what we would call, if you pardon the term, piggyback actions, where um, I think one of the exciting innovations and Brazil, as Marek's research has shown, is really in the vanguard of this, of taking actions against very large um, transnational cartels, taking the evidence essentially and applying it within the domestic context. Like That's a real cost-saving exercise. Um, it shows good collaboration between high-level, experienced, well-resourced competition agencies and others. And the Bra Brazil, of course, would be um, as one of the BRICS countries would be in a better position to do that than many others, but also um, is now developing expertise in that regard. But we still know from the report and from their responses to that um, that Marek put out in his survey is that they still have cases on their books from 2010. You know, they're waiting um, because of practical challenges, which as you are suggesting are the sort of thing that we should be tackling. Um, and there's a lot wrapped up in the question, right? So that's that's the piggyback, if you like, phase one. The second thing, this question of positive polity, um, like we find that I suppose the most sophisticated articulation of that is the agreement between the Americans and the Europeans. But we know from the first iteration, it had almost no effect. You know, it was a very mild way of cooperating. But I think we can learn from that because that shows us that even where you are well-established, even where you're powerful, put it bluntly, um, both internationally, but also vis-a-vis -vis multinational firms, um, there is still an inherent caution in the way agencies approach each other, especially when they're moving across borders, um, which suggests that starting cautiously doesn't mean things can't get better. You have to start somewhere. So even if the committee is limited to start with, that doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. You're not going to go straight into a very sophisticated agreement. So small steps help. Now, why do small steps help? 
him, which brings us to the next point, which is the challenges around enforcement, a lot of which are procedural, some of which can be addressed domestically again, as the report shows um, that you can change rules, for example, on service of notice of proceedings um, and resort to publication where delivery is proving impossible. Um, and that can be addressed through domestic legislation, as the report discusses. Um, however, if we want to and further augment cooperation around information, uh, you know, helping supporting each other in terms of securing evidence in particular, um, and perhaps even in relation to enforcement of around fines, which would be very interesting. Um, I think then I want to step back a bit, and I think this is where UNCTAD actually plays a really important role and has played a role to great effect over the years, um, which is the development of trust. Again, if someone comes cold calling, it doesn't work. What's needed is to develop these relationships um, that often are almost at the individual level between case officers um, through, of course, through the institutions onto a more sophisticated level. Um, and this is done through, I think this is done partly through having robust legal frameworks in place. And I think, again, the report shows us that increasingly that is the case. Th this conversation would, in short, would have looked very different 20 years ago. And we can talk about it very differently. And we should acknowledge that things have really moved on. And that's, that's, a very good thing to be able to say. Um, so you need a robust local framework, legal framework. But then we run into questions, as you've highlighted, around resources. Um, I often wonder when you teach students on their in LLMs and you're teaching them competition law and they're going back to, and you know they're, going to, they're interested in working in agencies, I often wonder how long they'll be in the agencies before they're snapped up by private practice. Now, I don't know how you, as a public servant, I don't know how you address that issue. Um, but that is a, you know, that leakage, if you could make it a revolving door, that would be great. You know, that if we could have more where it would become a career enhancement to go work in an agency, as, as is the case, actually, in, certainly in Europe, I wouldn't be so familiar with some other jurisdictions. It is a very positive thing to be seen to be moving in and out of the agency um, and maybe try and construct that in a way that's more of a virtue. And, and very practical resources around computing technology, especially in most developing economies, would be important to make sure that agencies have enough resources. Um, and finally, the question of networks. Networks are very good at building trust and that operates, I think, on a number of levels um, through information sharing. And this can be soft information or grey information, as it would be known, which is information to which agencies are privy, but are, it is not secret. The problem for the agencies, and I think, again, we mustn't lose sight of this, is that Secrecy is very important for a competition agency. They have to be able to show that the information that they, the confidential information that they garner from, um, uh, from companies or from whoever their subjects are is robust, that they, they can protect that information as appropriate. Now, that doesn't mean you can't share it with another agency, but you must do so within parameters of protocols that are robust and um, with, you know, that are very well protected. And to enable to do that, you need to show trust. You do this, I think, through building relationships, through collaborative arrangements. I think, um, ironically, given COVID times, meeting people is actually very important. I think the shift towards greater technology is very helpful, but will only take us so far. And I think, again, once times change, it will be very important for people to meet less frequently, but to in greater depth, because a lot of the clearing work you need to do before you get into a room with someone can happen now in this kind of environment, either through, you know, audio or indeed with visuals to help as well. And um, so I think UNCTAD has helped with networks. We have many competition networks. They've been around since the 1950s. The most recent is one emerging in Africa where they've only had two meetings. It's led by the South Africans. 
Um, but there's plenty of models that we can draw on and continue to build on. The thing is, they seem to wax and wane. You know, sometimes they're very active, sometimes they're not. But I think that activity should be driven by the projects. And in particular, if there's particular cases that um, agencies want to work on collaboratively. Um, so I think networks help, but they're only one aspect of the answer that you're looking for. Thanks. No, thank you very much. And thank you for, for, for mentioning ACTAD. I do see and uh, do think that the work of international organizations and regional organizations and networks has really, as you just said, clearly changed the overall picture. I don't think 25 or 30 years ago, one could have imagined so many developing countries, for instance, having adopted uh, uh, competition law and setting up institutions and in some cases being very keen on on effective enforcement, but of course, still a number of challenges remain. So now I would like to turn to Alexei and ask on the basis of the very, um, very substantive and extensive research that uh, the, the BRICS Competition Law and Policy Center has been conducting, how do you see this regarding the BRICS, which are, um, as uh, um, other speakers mentioned, in a way, in a privileged uh, situation? So Imelda mentioned, well, Jinlan mentioned China, uh, which of course is a huge, it's a huge country, even though they are probably one of the last of the BRICS to have actually adopted competition law and policy. I think Brazil is a extremely successful experience. I, 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 in the past, when I was with the competition authority, I, I, I followed up, let's say, their, their, their growing um, assertiveness and effectiveness. So I think that is very, very relevant. But again, these are very big jurisdictions. Of course, Alexei is very close. Well, he's based in Moscow, but he's working with all of these countries. So, Alexei, over to you on your views on all of these BRICS jurisdictions or others. Well, thank you, Teresa. Uh, thank you for having me and thank you, Marek, for this in interesting and very kind of thoughtful uh, work you did for uh, for UNCTAD and uh, in developing jurisdictions in general. And uh, I want to cover a little bit uh, Russian experience, maybe in more particular, and then and then answer the, to, uh, the question you posed, Teresa, on uh, BRICS. Uh, of, I think those are kind of interrelated things because Russia is, is because it's a little bit like for Russia a matryoshka doll, you know, story because we have uh, our own jurisdictions and we have Eurasian Union covering our jurisdiction with other neighboring countries. And uh, then further on, we have some sort of uh, quasi-regional cooperation with BRICS. Why I call it quasi? Because it's not actually a region, it's uh, more like community or a club of countries and uh, of very particular nature, actually. I think a BRICS cooperation or BRICS alliance, it's quite a little bit unique in the sense of international uh, governance, you know, uh, framework. If we, if we try to classify different forms of organizations, we definitely have, uh, you know, international organizations like UN, uh, which UNCTAD is part of, WTO and so on, we have regional unions which work, which normally starts with customs union of one type of an, or another. And then we have this type of, you know, uh, uh, international in essence, because BRICS is international community, combining very different uh, jurisdictions with very different, you know, economic and social uh, parameters, but uh, also trying to kind of build an, a closer network uh, to define the way the world is developing. 
So it's a, it's a type of, you know, building a community within international community. So, uh, and the reasons why BRICS emerged actually in the first place, it's a very interesting uh, question of its own, but it's probably, uh, uh, you know, deserves a special, you know, podcast conversation. Uh, but I will start with, you know, this positioning of Russia within this Matryoshka doll, you know, system and uh, extraterritoriality extern- plays a very interesting, you know, particular role in this because we already have a lot of discussions within community of Europe- Eurasian countries or Eurasian Union members. Of what is actually as a mandate for, inter- for Eurasian community or Eurasian uh, commission? in this particular sense, because they have a mandate uh, coming from transnational uh, behavior of uh, subjects, you know, of companies and transnational relations as it's framed by the union. And this also brings the topic of extraterritoriality to the Russian uh, authority, because in many instances, there is a, like a discussion whether this topic, this, you know, matter should be covered by Russian authority or broad to the to the Eurasian authority, and I know this this type of you know discussion uh, also exists in Europe. But I think criteria on which European Commission takes cases and criteria and mechanisms on kind of dispute resolution between national authorities and European Commission are more established, and I would say. Uh, a bit more transparent than what we have. And one of the reasons, because I think uh, criteria for European Commission, uh, you know, mandate are more like, you know, discretional in a sense and allowing European Commission to, to step in in number of cases, not always proving that those cases having this kind of, you know, uh, extraterritorial ter- ter- nature. But for Eurasian Commission, the criteria of transnational or extraterritorial for single jurisdiction uh, characteristics of a violation or, you know, economic relations are taking place in the context of investigation is mandatory. So they have to prove that something happening and having extraterritorial for either Russia or Kazakhstan or Belarus, you know, nature. And that's already opening up, you know, sort of Pandora dog box for discussions, what is extraterritorial, uh, because it's very unclear, especially in such interrelated economic, uh, you know, affairs like we have within Eurasian Union. Uh, And then further on, we have some uh, global, you know, uh, events or global uh, matters, uh, which definitely touching, uh, you know, uh, both Russia and other Eurasian countries. And here, I think BRICS community is coming in uh, of very, you know, uh, in, being very instrumental to helping to do what I would call, you know, leveling uh, the negotiation power or leveling kind of the playing field uh, between uh, BRICS authorities, smaller authorities, because Russia is not like a big authority. It's a maybe large authority institutionally, but it's not uh, covering uh, a huge economy, you know, because Russia is relatively small economy considering, you know, global share in GDP. It's a bit more than 2%. Uh, so China is a different story, but uh, also, you know, even standalone China can't uh, um, uh, can't actually negotiate equally with number of global players. And we saw it in, in the past. And uh, what being united, we increasing massively negotiating power, negotiating power, and that actually plays a role, very significant role, I think, in cases like merger 
review cases uh, of some global mergers and the case of Bayer Monsanto merger, which was recently decided, not already recently, like a couple of uh, three years ago already, but uh, still relatively recent case, um, uh, were decided on the basis of kind of collective bargaining on the side of BRICS uh, jurisdictions. And that actually has shown its efficiency. Sometimes, and the question of extraterritoriality in this sense is very interesting. And because in some cases, you have to prove a real like nexus relation to, to, to your territory, but uh, sometimes you can't predict this to, uh, with, you know, with uh, enough evidence. And uh, you can't expect in the changing world, in a, in a world which, you know, dynamic and constantly changing in sort of, you know, markets are uh, very blurred in the uh, boundaries and uh, they always changing. And in this sense, you can't really prove sometimes with sufficient evidence that certain merger would have impact on your um, markets or your economy. But being involved in the discussions of the global community of competition authorities on the terms on which this merger would be cleared uh, includes you in a kind of you know decision-making process uh, on a global scale, which is extremely important for any developing jurisdiction. So in a sense, let's take this Bayer Monsanto merger, for instance. Uh, sales of Bayer and Monsanto together in Russia uh, were relatively small in terms of, you know, proportion in terms of their, their global sales. You know, so it was less than 2%, I think, of, of their global sh uh, sales. But importance of technology involved in the discussion of this merger, because those technologies were related to, you know, next wave transformation of agricultural uh, industry, were so important then being included in the process of decision-making for Russian authority was, you know, imperative. You couldn't be put outside of the discussion how innovation process, how technological, you know, um, development would be organized structurally or, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, ways in which uh, innovation takes place, you know, development, what, which passes innovation takes in, in this industry, you couldn't be excluded. And the way to be included, it's not trying to impose your jurisdiction unilaterally, but trying to join the group which has enough negotiation power or leverage to solve this, you know, uh, matter or to clear this merger on on equal basis with the global corporation. See what I mean? Like that's uh, that's what it, it gives to authorities like Russia or South Africa, for instance which is relatively small economy comparing to the uh, to the strengths of these global companies. So I would say extraterritoriality is a bit old school concept. We shouldn't, we shouldn't think too much in nexus categories, whether it has implications on your economy right now, right here. It should be more considered in a way that global economy operates as a single enterprise in many instances. And some markets, you can't really say whether they like local, national, regional, whatever. They all global in, in, in the sense. Whether they would have implications for your economy tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, you can't prove in many instances. But you have to be included in the discussion on the trajectory of development. And that's, that's what actually um, should be achieved because we are lacking, as you perfectly know, we are lacking international legal regime for competition protection, you know, on global scale. So not having this 
authorities of this, you know, uh, mid-level uh, type, like Russian authority, which is positioned not within like a bunch of, you know, small developing jurisdictions, but not also in the, in the premium league. So we are not uh, playing in the first league. We're not playing in like third league. It's like a second level, whatever, second tier authorities. So, and, uh, but we, it's very important to be included. So international cooperation gives us and other authorities like us this opportunity, this, you know, ability. And so I think it's a, it's a next big thing for uh, international cooperation within um, a smaller jurisdiction or not like uh, premium, you know, first tier jurisdictions to get together, to increase the, our negotiation power, and then try to be included rather than excluded from the process of decision-making about the architecture of the global economy. Because that's what actually on stake, uh, at stake, sorry. Uh, we are discussing the next, you know, architecture or the vision of the global economy. Uh, yeah, that's my kind of take on, on the report and on this topic. Thank you very much. Also, very interesting remarks. Well, from Ankta's point of view, let me say that we are uh, uh, great believers in the power of what I would call regional cooperation, but especially, of course, uh, considering developing countries, young and small uh, competition authorities, because as you know, there is a sort of uh, proliferation of regional economic organizations that actually have adopted uh, either competition provisions or committed to cooperate at regional level in this field. And we see that uh, uh, in a way, as Alexei was suggesting, as a means also to increase their leverage vis-a-vis big uh, global companies, well, global companies uh, as a whole, even though <laughs> this is easier said than, than probably done. I would like to uh, still hear from Marek on, on the recommendations of, of your report, asking you what, uh, from on the basis of the research that you conducted, what do you think could be the, the, the recommendations and the, the policy options to explore air, air, at international level, of course, by ANCTAD, but by other international organizations or networks, since um, we do live in this global and digitalized uh, economy, and unfortunately, with uh, with uh, well going through um, uh, a pandemic that uh, uh, is lasting longer than I'm sure all of us could ever <laughs> have thought, not even wished for. Um, so, what would what would come to you as maybe um, more easily implementable? Uh, uh, recommendations from the set of your uh, suggestions. Over to you. Thank you so much, Teresa. Um, so I'm, I'm very pragmatic in approach, and, and that was the, the, the way uh, the report has been framed. There is a number of pragmatic steps that can be taken to actually narrow the enforcement gaps. And colleagues here on the panel touch upon many of these uh, ideas already, and that's, that's really valuable. There is also a sister project, uh, an article in the Journal of Competition and Economics, which touches upon this issue, and I will, I will sort of speak to, to all of those. You talked about UNCTAD and the role of UNCTAD, and I think the, one of the steps which still can be taken and would be very valuable would be to provide a textual uh, basis for extraterritoriality in model law and competition. So UNCTAD's model of competition, many listeners would know, is a leading international benchmark for many jurisdictions. If you want to think about your competition legislation, you would often refer to UNCTAD model of competition. And 
And covering extraterritoriality there, I think, would be very useful because that would really help many jurisdictions to frame their thinking about it and the way forward. Right, so I think that's that's really valuable and that's very pragmatic because indeed provision of textual basis for territoriality is step one. We've talked a lot here about experience of BRICS, but in fact the initial experience of BRICS, because of the lack of textual basis, has not been so so positive. They had to uh, learn the hard way how to go about it, giving positive experience to other countries that followed later. So the experience, for example, in early 1990s has not been that that great, right? And that applied to BRICS, but also applied to other jurisdictions. We had interesting cases in, in Chile where foreign uh, cartelists challenged possibility of Ch- uh, Chilean competition agency to apply domestic competition law, despite the fact that the same cartel has already been investigated in a number of other jurisdictions in the developed world, right? So if you think about gaming of the system, yes, cartelists are likely to do that. So I think that that needs to done to be done. Um, we need to also think about the entire chain of enforcement, and there are challenges which has already been touched upon and outlined outlined in the report, such as dealing with, for example, rules of service. Right? How do you initiate proceedings? How to speed that up? Imelda talked very nicely about the Brazilian experience, and we have a number of very very smart and elaborate jurisdictions which still struggles with such rules. And these are not only challenges faced by the developing world, these are still challenges faced by the developed world. Uh, we talked about access to evidence and more, more, more broadly uh, information in such cases. And I think there is progress can be achieved in that regard. Some of that can, of course, happen within the collaborative framework, such as, uh, for example, the cooperation between BRICS countries or more broadly within UNCTAD. But many of the things in that regard can be done unilaterally by interested developing countries, which could allow their competition agencies to seek evidence from partners and to provide assistance. That can be done and that could be facilitated. Of course, the the big issue is recognition and enforcement of rendered decisions and judgments in such cases. We haven't achieved any progress here, even between the most sophisticated jurisdictions internationally. So, for example, between the US and EU. So there is there is still still progress to be made. But more broadly, we still need investment of resources into trust building between agencies. And I think that's the space in which UNCTAD is doing a lot, a lot of good things, bringing people together, uh, sharing know-how and sharing experience. And exactly sharing know-how and experience is very important because quite often different countries are affected differently. And even if neighboring, they may have huge disparities of um, expertise in competition law. So being able to learn from one another is very important and useful. And even following what your neighbors are doing, I think, is very useful. And, you know, for many listeners, this will be obvious, but language still becomes an issue, right? Because language changes between countries. Not everybody is fluent in English. Not all information is uh, uh, available. Um, so I think I'll stop here, but there is, um, there, is, um, there are many steps that can be taken. And the, 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 the good news is that uh, enforcement gap is narrowing down. So the situation from consumers is changing. And we've been talking about the tra- trajectory over the last 20, 30 years. Teresa was talking about introduction of competition law internationally. So although uh, formidable challenges remain, a lot has been achieved to date. Thank you very much. I would like, uh, just before we close, to ask uh, still our our uh, other guest speakers if they want to add any final thoughts to this 
um, more or less closing remarks by by Marek, uh, because you all of you uh, raised very interesting issues. I think you know this conversation could could be prolonged. But so let me start with um, with uh, Jim Len again. Would you like to add anything? Would you like to comment on something? Would you have any? suggestion of uh, uh, along the lines of these recommendations that could be considered at national, regional or international level. Thank you very much, Teresa. Um, I think it's very timely that uh, the report launched by uh, Omtad and led by Marek uh, is published. Uh, that, I mean, given uh, the uh, the application of competition law against business conduct outside of the jurisdiction, territorial jurisdiction of a developing country's competition regime is somehow quite a kind of a common practice now. And uh, the such a common practice actually set out the foundation for competition regimes, whether it's developed or developing colonies, to set out the foundation for them to talk to each other, communicate with each other, and to a certain extent to collaborate with each other. What I find, uh, so that's very promising. And I find that bilateral cl collaboration does uh, motivate the competition authorities at various levels to, to understand and collaborate. But I, what I see that going forward, um, uh, fundamentally the, the current bilateral cooperation uh, is based on the motivation to 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 use the extraterritorial application of competition law to protect the domestic uh, market from external harm so that's the fundamental normative framework um, that's kind of shared by every competition regimes it works uh, because it helps everybody to talk to each other but to a certain extent it also can um, kind of generate certain challenges. For example, it explains why some regimes are less motivated to share because the current investigation does not really involve that much domestic harm or because the current regime has finished its investigation. It doesn't really require bilateral collaboration or support. So what is the main motivation to share the information? Um, yeah, Marek, uh, you want to... Um, so. Um, Going forward, um, I mean, the effects doctrine definitely is a set of norms that help people, I mean, attract regimes to, to come together because they have something to refer to. But um, somehow it might also be helpful to kind of re review and reconsider the current framework and see um, whether there could be some innovative tools to, to somehow set out a minimum exchange of information and make it make the regimes more motivated to talk to each other, become more transparent towards each other. For example, in the area of agency-held information, for example, which are not really confidential information, but are held by agency. So, um, and somehow there could be a helpful a framework that could make, for example, the regulation of the international cartel more effective, but also more equitable. Thanks. Thank you. Marek, you wanted to comment if on I may, something? If I may jump in, I think that Shannon raised a, a very important point, and, and I'm not sure whether all listeners would know, but she has an amazing paper forthcoming in World Competition, which I can highly recommend. Um, Shannon raised the issue of what would be the interest of some competition agencies of sharing information, perhaps even evidence. 
And I, I, I love this question because it's a very pertinent one. It's an important one which, which, which you need to resolve. I like to think that actually sharing of information and even evidence with others empowers your own domestic regime because you not only penalize um, violators who, you know, um, harmed your consumers and perhaps businesses in your jurisdiction, but it's also sending a strong message. If you harm in this jurisdiction, we not only chase after you, but will help others to go after you, right? So if you think about it, there's positive externality. There is a capacity to empower not only your own competition agency, but also a, a capacity of empowering others at pretty much zero cost. So I like to think about it quite positively. Thank you. Yeah, I, I let, let me just say that I absolutely agree, even though I don't think it is uh, a, a clear-cut case, just to also share with our listeners um, that ANCTAD adopted in October 2020 a document entitled Guiding Policies and Procedures under Section F of the UN Set on Competition. Section F is devoted to international measures and, of course, among other things, strongly advocates for uh, cooperation between competition authorities. And um, after two years' discussions, after a very interesting proposal brought by um, the Federal Anti-Monopoly Service of the Russian Federation, we were able to agree internationally on a number of practical steps and some guidelines that could be of assistance, especially to the young and small competition authorities of developing countries. And we have had so far received two requests because among other things, this GPP document um, provided for an increased role of the UNCTAD Secretariat as a broker between brackets, as a mediator. Uh, and I think that was very appropriate because this is what international, especially intergovernmental organizations are all about. And I wanted to tell you that even though, of course, we have uh, faced legitimate um, obstacles, let's put it like that, due to the different legal systems, to the lack of uh, committee provisions or bilateral cooperation agreements, we've had a very recent, interesting, positive experience that related very much to what Imelda mentioned. So the sharing of information that was not confidential by a developed country competition authority, but that was extremely helpful and really um, committed to assist a, de uh, a developing country's competition authority. So that also encourages us as the UNCTAD Secretariat so that there is still room to improve. And this goes back to the, to the importance of trust and of bringing competition experts together and exchanging information and knowledge. But I would like to hand over to Imelda to hear any final thoughts or any comments on what uh, Marek and Jelen have just said. Uh, thanks, everybody. One thought I had that we might not have mentioned in relation to the sharing of information, which is um, the role of, of criminal sanction and then constraints that are imposed on agencies should they wish to share. Um, th that's not the purpose of this discussion, but I think it's important to flag it as a, as a, as a relevant um, and correct constraint on, on sharing um, that we need to factor in. And I, again, the Australia-New Zealand uh, committee arrangement is useful in that respect as a model. But I, I, um, I don't know how one fully squares that circle. On the one hand, having criminal sanctions, because that can be very powerful. But on the other hand, it really can constrain the extent to which information can be shared. I'm very heartened to hear of the experience of UNCTAD 
um, as broker, I think that's a very important role because I feel for some agencies, while I agree with Marek that it can be low cost to share information, I think sometimes agencies have to account for what they do so carefully that they can be limited as the extent to which they're allowed to cooperate. They, they're allowed to expend resources that have an impact outside the jurisdiction. Um, I don't mean to be so negative, but I'm very pleased to hear the positive story coming from Untact. Thanks. No, thank you very much. No, I think it is a, it is it's quite an interesting experience, especially uh, of course. It's maybe a, this is your case also, but I I have done most of my career actually in that in in competition law enforcement. So of course, it, I think it's very helpful that one can really relate to the constraints, to the reservations, as you said. So it's not just a question of the legal uh, framework and requirements, but I think it's also a question of attitudes and. Frankly, let me say that UNCTAD, for that matter, compared to other international organizations, has that advantage because we are intergovernmental. That means that uh, our 195 members are equally entitled to ask for our assistance, to our intervention, to our support. And that sort of legitimates really our best efforts in reaching out to others, to more experienced competition authorities in this, in this case. To, to support. And frankly, I, I would have a very positive assessment. And on this note, let's go, let's hear again from Alexei. So any, any, um, let's say final for the time being, uh, suggestions on how we could proceed. you you already mentioned, uh, interesting, uh, references. I do see a lot of potential. And this is again, what we attack that believe on this regional, not formally, but this regional type of cooperation of community, as you mentioned, but what, what would you like to add over to you? Uh, first, I want to congratulate UNCTAD uh, with, you know, the real significant progress for last two years, we see it on this uh, topic and uh, that we really like building a, some sort of framework on international cooperation and competition sphere. It gives hope that one day we can come closer to international regime for protection of competition on global markets. Because I'm a, a bit kind of maybe fixated on this, but we do see the uh, unequal, you know, uh, situation, unequal uh, relations between authorities and global corporations. So global corporations have, you know, dramatically better access to information on all you know, aspects of functioning of the market, uh, dramatically more resources. So it's really like imbalanced. So there is no level playing field. So leveling this playing field, uh, that's a, a very big deal, I think, for except maybe American and Euro European Commission, American authorities and European Commission, even like China now doesn't stand on, uh, on uh, in this line. So uh, we still have to formulate somehow how to make authorities more equipped, more capable, in dealing with dramatic changes, what we see in, in global economy, that's that's I think an essential thing, and it's great that the young started moving into this direction. I don't think we. Uh, I want to re, uh, a little bit comment on what was previously said. I don't think that authorities have to care much so much about secrecy, to be honest, uh, because companies don't care much about you know keeping public data, you know, in 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 the way that it they should be kept, you know. Uh, we we hear. I mean, we know that they abuse their control of big data in enormously, enormously, like in uh, in all possible instances. I think we are too much fixated or kind of stuck in this industrial age, you know, concept of co confidential information of industrial nature. 
I don't think in other areas of social importance, let's say healthcare or, I don't know, financial monitoring where we uh, deal with uh, some criminal activities like money laundering, authorities are that, you know, cautious not to disclose uh, something uh, which has, you know, a label of secret. Uh, I don't think that that's, uh, if you compare values, you know, on one side, we see enormous concentration of market power everywhere, huge abusive, uh, you know, practices, practices of abusive nature, they broadening, you know, more and more different uh, forms of abusive behavior we see against consumers. And authorities kind of incapable to, to grasp with this, you know, growing uh, massive avalanche of problems. And on the other side, we, it, it's one, so one value is to protect consumers, people, businesses against this type of, you know, monopolization processes. And on the other hand, we say like a uh, value of commercial information, of confidential information uh, that would discourage companies to cooperate. I don't think those are comparable values, to be honest. I think we are a little bit too much fixated on this type, on this parameter of secrecy. And we should be more on sharing side rather than, you know, keeping it protected. That's what my take kind of, I don't say that open up everything, you know, should be like open access to all the data. But I think in principle, the trend is a bit wrong. I mean, I'm not trend, but the, the status quo. So we have to uh, establish a different trend, you know, set another trend. So trend set, uh, setting tendency should be like more sharing, more access, more kind of, you know, collaborative use usage of, of, of data. And here, I see a lot of, you know, progress already going on. And uh, one of the initiatives which was discussed in the BRICS framework, and I do hope that probably it will, uh, you know, uh, be uh, somehow implemented in the near future. But uh, the, the idea was very simple, you know, to uh, pre prevent some sort of strategic behavior, you know, forum shopping, maneuvering, uh, by global corporations when they apply to the authorities for clearance of their mergers. Because what they're doing, they strategically apply yeah? to one authority first, then they wait until procedural uh, you know, terms uh, end, and then they go to other authorities and so on. Uh, put in, in our laws, in national laws, we don't need even international treaty on this, just mention within procedural codes of different types that if you apply or have to apply in the future, to other authorities within BRICS community, let's say, or it could be a broader community, it could be the BRICS plus community, it could be any, any type of community, you have to disclose same set of information to each of the authorities. It doesn't matter whether this information covers all the particular you know, problems this authority deals with in the national economy. It's important that all authorities are informed equally. So they can, you know, rely on the same type of data to make their, you know, decision. And I agree what was said uh, initially, Bekenlein and, and uh, Marek, that uh, that could be some, you know, decent, uh, a lack of incentives by the authorities to do this. But if you put it in the law as a principle, there will not be discussion, no kind of discretion. If you put it as a principle within national laws, saying like it's just fair, to share information. It's like fair to, to discuss a case in the court uh, when you do like discovery. You know, first you open up all the evidence you have and then you 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 make conclusion. You have to open up what, what, what kind of data you have when you're making a merger, when you're kind of concluding a merger. 
you 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 have your business judgment based on some sort of data. Share this data, open up, and let authorities de decide on a informed basis. Because now it's like a discussion between you know uh, blind and deaf. Deaf, sorry. Uh, you know, when one one knows what he's doing, others don't know what what's actually his or her intentions in this particular case. It's very kind of confusing. So what I'm saying, uh, international cooperation is essential in building, you know, more kind of informed and capable decision making on the side of authorities everywhere. And I'm sure that as soon as you start this type of process of sharing, developed countries will jump in immediately because they also suffering from the same type of problems, same type of all national authorities in Europe, they would be happy to get more data on behavior of Google or, I don't know, uh, pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer. They want to know what these guys actually do, uh, thinking when they, you know, uh, either starting, you know, their mergers and acquisitions or uh, change their business models. What actually behind this? What are, what are real intentions? And this type of things are, uh, I think, uh, a future of antitrust law in the world and i hope that Yungtat would be on the on the frontier of this of this movement that's my kind of you know take on this well thank you that is a very uh encouraging uh final remark uh thank you alexei i think i don't know if um our other um guest speakers would like to comment because if not i would um like to close this uh podcast handing over to marek since it was his report that uh that allowed us to meet and to have this interesting conversation thank you so much teresa uh, there's no doubt much research is to follow um but i don't, don't want to abuse your time thank you so much for, to all of you for joining us many thanks for, to teresa and Anktat for facilitating this work and indeed for sharing today and to all our discussions for joining us today and expressing their views and i hope this was an interesting episode of, of our low pod podcast to all the listeners 